0: Thank you so much.
1: Good morning, Ironworks. It's a blessing to be here with you this morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 42, which is also printed there in your bulletin. We're going to read the living word of God, Psalm 42, and then pray. This is the living word of Christ. To the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mitzar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Briefly pray with me. Father, we worship you for your goodness and your kindness. We thank you that you have moved your prophets and apostles to write all different kinds of genres in scripture. And we thank you for the Psalms, O Lord. Prayers that broken people like us have been moved to write by your spirit your perfect words for us to pray, for us to sing, for us to call out to you in the midst of depression and despair. So Lord, we pray that you, the author of this psalm, would give us understanding of it, that we may apply it to our lives by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. We could tell Psalm 42 is closely related to Psalm 43 because this refrain, this repeat, why are you downcast, O my soul, also appears in Psalm 43, verse 5. Notice I began not just with verse 1, as it's printed in the English, but actually in the Hebrew Bible, verse 1 begins with the inscription, the introduction to the choir master, to the music worshiper, to the lead music singer. And notice that this psalm is written by the sons of Korah. They're among the Levites that David installed to worship the Lord at the tabernacle and the temple. One of them is He-Man, not He-Man from the cartoon in the 80s that some of you grew up watching, but He-Man, whose right-hand man was Asaph. Asaph. And notice it's called a maskil, a word that means wisdom. It's a wisdom psalm. But notice also that this psalm is a lament. What is a lament? A lament is a prayer song in which the psalmist cries out to God in the midst of his distress, in the midst of his brokenness, often with questions, questions. This psalm is filled with questions, nine of them. Three of the questions are to God. When shall I come and see God? Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go about mourning? Two of the questions are asked by the enemy to the psalmist as he repeats twice, where is your God? And notice four of the questions are asked by the psalmist to himself, to his own soul. Six times we find this phrase, my soul, my soul, showing how personal this psalm is. Similar to the heart, which we heard about earlier in our order of worship, The soul is the real you. It's the deepest part of your existence. The soul is where all your desires and emotions and longings spring from. All of us have been created with a soul that dwells in a body, but it's amazing that the soul is eternal. Even though our body will die, our soul lives on in one of two places. So this psalm is soul-centered, which brings us to our three points. The thirsty soul, the exiled soul, and the downcast soul. First, let's begin with the thirsty soul. The psalmist has a thirsty soul because he's far away from the life-giving presence of the living God in the temple. And he longs, he pants to return to that dwelling place of God to fellowship with the Lord. And so although this psalm is soul-centered, it's not self-centered. This soul-centered God is actually even more so God-centered because the thirsty soul knows it's only the true and living God who can satisfy his deepest desires. And so the metaphor of drink is given to us. The thirsty soul wants to drink of the life-giving waters of the living God here in verses one and two. It's amazing that out of all 150 psalms, this is the only psalm that begins with a comparison, a simile. And the image in verse one is that of a deer who's in a portion dry land panting and longing and thirsting for water. Just like a deer longs for the deep streams of water, in the same way my soul longs for you, O oh God. This unique verb to pant, which means to long for, to crave, it's only found here, and in Joel one twenty. In both passages, and animals longing thirst is in the context of a desolate environment due to exile. And the psalmist says, that's how my soul is for the living God. As I said, this psalm is a song, and as such, it's an intricately written poem. It uses in-depth parallelism, where one line is unpacked by the next, but it's not just parallelism and content. The first line is actually equal to the second line rhythmically, in meter, in beat, and in syllables. 12 syllables, 12 syllables, all to point to the parallelism of the content. The deer and the soul both pant for and long for something. The deer longs for flowing streams while the soul longs for you, O God. These flowing streams refer to the deepest water channel of a valley, the deepest part of a water channel. The thirsty soul doesn't just want a tiny sip of the Lord. The thirsty soul wants to drink deeply. In verse 2, the metaphor is elaborated on that the it's, it's literally thirsting for God as if God is the water. In verse 1, my soul thirsts for you, O God. In verse 2, just to put it frankly, my soul thirsts for God. And he gets even more specific. Who is God? He's the living God. And so this begs the question, when shall I come? That is, when shall I come in? When shall I enter in to the temple? which is the house of God mentioned in verse four. Recall that in the Old Testament, the Lord used his holy place to teach his people about holy space, to teach his people about his holiness and their uncleanness, their unholiness, which only he can change through a sacrifice. And as they would come into his presence, he would reveal his glory. The psalmist longs for the living God in the temple. He wants to see God. The Hebrew suggests he doesn't want to just be seen by God as glorious as that is. He wants to do the seeing. He wants to see the face and the glory and the beauty and the power of God. Makes sense that the Levites, the sons of Korah, or ordained by David to write and sing psalms at the temple, and so the sons of Korah here imitate David's metaphor from Psalm 63. Just as we read in 42:2, my soul thirsts for God. David prays in Psalm 63, my soul thirsts for you, O God, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. In this way, I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, in the holy place, beholding your power and your glory. Because when I do so, David said, my soul will be satisfied as with fat in rich food. So drinking and eating are metaphors for communion and fellowship with the living God in the temple. Again, the connection of thirsting for the living God in his temple and the fact that it's at the temple is this. The living God is called the fountain of living waters. Jeremiah 2.13, which are said to flow out of the temple in Ezekiel 47 and give life to everything that it touches. The sense is the living God gives forth himself as living waters from his life-giving presence in his temple where he dwelt with his people. We have an application for us this morning Does your soul thirst for the true and living God? Do you long and pant for the Lord? Bottom line is, every soul is thirsty. Because God created every human to have a craving for him. So even after our first parents, Adam and Eve, instead of Finding their satisfaction in the Lord, turned away to sin, even after that, all human beings are still thirsty in soul. And we're either seeking to satisfy our souls' quench in Him or in God replacements, other things. And so, no wonder the Lord, through the prophet Jeremiah, says, This is shocking. Let the heavens be appalled and disgusted that my people have committed two evils. One, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And if that wasn't bad enough, secondly, they've dug out broken cisterns that can hold no water. They have preferred the sewage of their sin and idolatry to me, the living God. And so the Lord Jesus Christ invites you this morning to come to him. He is God in the flesh who promises to give himself as life-giving water that both cleanses, purifies, and satisfies the soul. Or are you like the Samaritan woman in John 4, still drinking the fleeting waters of this world that cause our soul to be famished? Famished. The psalmist in Psalm 42 longs for the living God. But instead of drinking of God, what does he drink in verse 3? He drinks of his tears. There's a reversal of the water imagery. Now his tears have become his food, literally his bread, by day and by night. And what's the circumstance of his tears? He gets specific It's not only being far from the Lord, it's the mocking and taunting of his persecutors saying to me all the day long, where is your God? And so he feels forgotten by God. And this brings us to our second point. The thirsting soul is also the exiled soul. The exiled soul. In scripture, exile is being far from God. Now that the psalmist is physically far from God, he seeks to encourage his soul by recalling when he was near to God at the temple. And so notice in verse four, as he pours out his soul, more water imagery, the psalmist attempts to remember these four things, all there in verse four, that have to do with the pilgrimage to the house of God, which was a joyful journey. He remembers first, he would Go up, he would traverse, he would pass over the terrain of Israel along with the throng, a a large mass of people. Secondly, he would lead them to the house of God. And this makes sense. As a Levite, a temple singer, the sons of Korah were worship leaders. And the destination of this journey was the greatest of all, the dwelling place of the living God, where the Lord dwelt with his people for intimate. Joyful communion. And the psalmist longs to be back there. And he can recall, thirdly, the throng of people created a joyful noise, a sound to the Lord, a rejoicing cry, a song of thanksgiving, glad shouts and songs of praise we see there. And fourthly, he remembers that the crowd that he led, it was not the frozen chosen They were not a lame bunch. They were a multitude of festival keepers, joyfully keeping the feasts and festivals that celebrated God's saving works of redemption. Is he there now? No. He's not at the temple praising God. Instead, he's far from God, far from his people, and he remembers the Lord all the way from the Jordan River on the other side of the Jordan River up by Mount Hermon outside of the land of promise. And then he begins to use word play in verses six and seven using three of the same Hebrew words from verse four. But he inverts them. He turns them around to give them a negative sense. Notice this. Although he remembered in verse four, now in verse five, he remembers. being As he's far from God, he remembers. All the way. From the land of Jordan. Formerly he heard the sound. The shout of praise. But now in verse 7. He hears the shout. The sound. The roar. Same word. Of God's waterfalls. The deep seas are calling out to the deep seas. At the shout of your waterfalls. O Lord. Before the psalmist would go up. He would traverse. He'd pass over the land to the temple. But now God's wrath is passing over him. And the metaphor of waters of judgment flowing over him. All your breaker waves and all your roller waves are passing over me. They've gone over me. I used to go up to the temple, but now your wrath is going over me. The psalmist describes his thirsting, exiled soul, along with the taunts of the enemy, as being... The very waters, not of the satisfaction of God, but the waters of judgment that God poured out on the wicked at the flood and upon the Egyptians at the exodus. How so? Because this word here in verse seven for deep to home is the same word used over and over, especially for the deep seas of the flood in Genesis six through nine and the deep seas that God judged the Egyptians with at the exodus in Exodus 15. Yet instead of the unbelieving wicked of Noah's day, instead of the idol-worshiping Egyptians thrown into the deep seas, now the waters of judgment have swept over him. In fact, when Jonah the prophet is thrown into the deep seas after running from God, he quotes Psalm 42, 7, the last part of the verse verbatim, All your breakers and your waves have passed over me. Jonah takes the experience of the psalmist, which is metaphorical for the psalmist, and Jonah actually undergoes the literal waters of God's judgment upon himself, which he compares to exile being driven away from God's holy temple. So another water reversal Instead of thirsting for the life-giving water of God, he now receives the water of death. No wonder his soul is downcast, which brings us to our final point, the downcast soul. We notice the repetition of the word downcast three times in this psalm. This word downcast means to be pressed down from being brought low. It's related to the word for a deep pit a depressed geographical area. For this reason, it'd be fair to translate it in the 20th century, 21st century notion of depressed. Why are you depressed, oh my soul? Is in parallel with the second question. Why are you in turmoil within me? Why, why are you growling, murmuring, groaning? Notice that the Lord does not leave the psalmist to himself. The Lord provides for the psalmist something else. Although by day and by night, tears have been his food. Notice in verse 8, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. And what's the song that's with me? A prayer to the God of my life. A prayer song, likely a psalm. And so Christians, the Lord has given you prayers written by the Spirit to pray in the midst of your downcastness. The Lord in his goodness has given us a psalm for how to navigate through depression. Consider the Lord's humble compassion in that. He knows that since the fall of Adam and Eve, depression is not just a mental health diagnosis reserved for some people, although it can be in worse ways. But on one level, every human being deals with depression in various degrees. Some people struggle with depression worse than others. For some of us, we're depressed due to misplaced desires. Our idols have left us in despair And the weight of our guilt leaves us downcast. For some of us, because we're physical, spiritual creatures in which the soul affects the body and the body affects the soul, what we eat affects our soul. It gives us downcast moods. Some of us wrestle with depression from deep grief over the loss of a loved one. Besides serving at Olive Street, I work for Westminster Theological Seminary and I have the great privilege of talking with people who want to give toward the mission of the seminary to train men like Pastor Darren, Pastor John Orlando, myself, in the life-giving word of Christ. And I called a woman who's a widow now, later in life, and I asked her, what can we pray for for you? She said, pray for me because every morning I'm faced with the choice. I can either give in to being overwhelmed by grief and despair that I lost my husband last year, or I can serve Christ. Now we can mourn before the Lord, but this woman and her words, it really struck me that there's a giving in to grief that overwhelms us and leaves us in depression and cripples us. Maybe your depression is from a shattered dream, Maybe your depression is connected with the wounds that others have inflicted upon you. Again, millions of people are diagnosed with depression and whether you are diagnosed with it or not, whether you have medication for it or not, the question still remains, what will you do with the living God in your depression? And this psalm shows us, the Lord promises his presence with us. And it's giving clues that God's presence will not just be bound to an earthly dwelling house, the temple, but the Lord is with the psalmist outside the land of promise. And so the psalmist tells his soul, and this is what we have to do in our depression, speak the truth of the word of God to ourselves, hope in God, O soul. And this word for hope has to do with not just wishful thinking, but where you're persuaded of God's promises and we can expect he will come through. Hope in God. I shall again praise him. He's my salvation and my God. And that's how the psalm ends. But again, there's a sequel to the psalm, Psalm 43. What the psalmist longs for in Psalm 42, he begins to anticipate and experience with greater hope in Psalm 43, where he cries out, for God's light and his truth in verse three and four that will lead him back to God's holy mountain, back to God's temple dwelling. Did the Lord answer the psalmist's prayer to send out his light and his truth? The psalmist may not have known what we know, that the light and truth of God came as a person the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world, who is the way, the truth, and the life, who has come to bring exiled peoples, exiled nations back to the living God. But get this, in order for Christ to bring us back to his father's house, he first had to experience Psalm 42. And this should baffle us this morning, that the living God took upon a human soul and a human body to become the thirsty, exiled, downcast, depressed soul. So Psalm 42 was primarily written for it to be experienced and prayed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus experienced Psalm 42. When he arrived on the scene, the spiritual condition of Israel was dry. Jesus grew up before His father in a spiritually dry, parched land, Isaiah 53, 2. As he fasted in the wilderness, his soul was the thirsty soul longing for his father. And yet he found his father faithful to satisfy him. His bread and his drink was to do his will. Jesus could identify with verse 4 of Psalm 42, he himself walked up to the temple in Jerusalem, didn't he? With his family when he was 12 years old, among a multitude of worshipers, so excited that when his parents couldn't find him, mom and dad, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house, my heavenly father's house? Jesus later in his life, before going to the cross, In the months that followed, stood on the temple steps, saying, Come to me, whoever thirsts, indicating he is the fountain of the living water that flows out of the temple. In Ezekiel 47, Jesus was at the Jordan River. He heard the crashing of the waves as he was baptized by John, knowing it pointed forward to him, being baptized by the very wrath of God poured out on him, not for his sin, but for our sin. As all the water judgments in the Old Testament of the flood and the exodus in Jonah pointed forward to the pouring out of the fair, just punishment that we deserve for our sins, which fell on Christ for all who put their faith on him. On the cross, Jesus was the exiled soul. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was also the depressed soul. Why do I say that? because Jesus prayed Psalm 42 in the garden of Gethsemane the night before he died on the cross he actually quotes the refrain of Psalm 42 when he says in Mark 26:38 very sorrowful is my soul the greek old testament the translation of the hebrew bible words it like this why are you very sorrowful o soul But Jesus doesn't ask the question because he knows the answer and he just declares it. Very sorrowful is my soul, even unto death. When our Lord considers that every one of our sins will be laid upon him and that he is going to go and drink the cup, not of the life giving waters of God, but the cup of wrath on the cross when he considers that what we would have experienced forever in separation from God and hell is about to be poured out on Christ, he prays what? Psalm 42. Christ's sorrowful soul became the thirsty soul on the cross. I thirst but what was given to him to drink. A sponge of bitter wine pointing to the fact he drank drink the cup of wrath that we might drink the cup of blessing and salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross. The temple veil was torn in two, showing now we have access to the living God. It's not just on this mountain or in Jerusalem that we can worship the living God, Jesus said to the woman in John 4, but by the Spirit who comes to live in us and comfort us in our sorrows. And he's given us his word as the Lord Jesus Christ, who's already traversed all the darkest paths, all the deepest valleys of death for us. He's with us in our sorrow, beloved. And so in closing... Since Jesus has already walked the path of deep, dark depression and rose victorious over it, he promises to walk you through it and bring you to himself the fountain of living waters. And he's given us a sign and pointer to that, hasn't he? In the Lord's Supper, which we'll partake now together. Please pray with me. Oh, Lord Jesus, we want to thank you. You not only wrote this psalm, as the divine author writing through the Levitical Priest. We thank you, Lord, that you live this Psalm, you prayed the Psalm, you fulfilled the psalm that we might take great comfort in it. And Lord, we thank you that we will be among that throng that you lead to the heavenly mount of the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and the new earth, where we drink from you freely for all eternity. And we thank you, O Lord, that we will see your face, the very face of God. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless our partaking of the Lord's Supper now. That you would quench and satisfy our thirsty souls by your bread and by your cup. It's in your name we pray.